1: absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes
0: bombas big comfort for everyone go to bombas.com slash wondery and
1: use code wondery for 20 percent off your first purchase well hey it's a nerdist podcast number 345 come in take off your shoes put on a sweater have a hug here's some tea in the form of words A bunch of shows coming up. I've had so much fun on the road, kind of working the new hour, and uh, it's been fantastic. Madison, Wisconsin was really fun. Caroline's in New York was really fun. Uh, And there's a ton more dates coming up, which I don't know if I've announced specifically what they are, but uh, starting very soon, you would have to listen to this within two days of the show being posted. But I'm going to be giving uh, a moderated talk at Rutgers uh, university on April 16th Kind of about uh, the Nerdist stuff And the Nerdist Way book and it's, uh, it's for Rutgers Geek Week So I believe if you follow At Rutgers Geek Week on Twitter You can get more information about that uh, it is a free, That one's a free show um, Then I'm going to be at The Comedy Works In Denver, May 2nd, 3rd And 4th uh, I love the Comedy Works It's one of my favorite clubs in the country It's right in Larimer Square I went to high school in Denver for a couple years. It's a great town, and I adore it. I believe Skydart will be with me if you want to say hi to her as well. See, I'll use my girlfriend to entice you to come see the shows. Uh, May 9th, 10th, and 11th, I will be at Helium in Portland. And then May 15th and 16th at the Leicester Square Theater in London. Uh, then May 24th, Ramshead in Baltimore, Maryland. May 25th, the 930 Club in D.C., And then uh, some shows in June. I think I might be coming to Philadelphia, but I don't know exactly just yet. So hold on that, and then uh, I'll announce more as I get them. But uh, if you go to Nerdist.com slash calendar, you can get information on that. Yes, I will come after the show. Yes, I will hug you uh, if you want. Or I don't have to. Maybe you don't want me in your personal space. But at least I come out and say hi and thank you very much for coming to the show and supporting all the Nerdist stuff. Speaking of supporting the Nerdist stuff, oh, my God, what a segue. Ah, see, I fucked it up because I just said, hey, what a segue. And acknowledging the segue uh, ruins a segue. It's the Heisenberg principle of segues. Uh, but Stamps.com is a sponsor for this episode of the Nerds Podcast. is is 24-7 access to all the services from the post office that you would need right at your desk or your bed or wherever. Maybe you have a lap desk. I don't know how you work, but wherever your computer is, you will have access to uh, your very own post office. You'll print exactly the postage you need. Uh, you never have to overpay for postage. You never have to go to the post office again. Your mail carrier will pick everything up. Stamps.com is phenomenal, phenomenal, and there's a no-risk trial for Nerdist users, uh, $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. Stamps.com, enter the promo code NERDIST. This gentleman... I is I've only recently kind of become palin, but what a terrific guy. And I know what your comments are gonna be on the website. Oh, another terrific guess. Yeah, that's all, another terrific guess. Cause I get to talk to a lot of really nice, cool, fun people. And uh, and this guy is definitely the opposite of a jerk. It's Dominic Monahan. He is so fucking cool. I mean, even just his accent alone is just like, it's just like gravy, it's just like buttery gravy in your ears. I mean, even if you didn't listen to the words he was saying and the wonderful things that he had to say and talk about all the stuff that he's worked on, you, if you just tune those out and just listen to his accent, you could be like, my ears have been fed all day. I feel like I've had a delicious country breakfast for my ears. It's like a Cracker Barrel for your ear canals. Uh, is Dominic Monaghan. I may be getting a little off point here, but you can follow Dom uh, on at, at Dom's Wild Things on Twitter, and then uh, we reveal that there's a particular movie that Dom's looking for that if you can find, he will uh, give you a special treat, which we talk about in the podcast. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about Lost, maybe we'll talk a little bit about Lord of the Rings, maybe we'll talk a little bit about um, animals. So uh, Also, I should mention that his show, uh, Wild Things, on BBC America is... Super cool. He is a lifelong animal lover and basically tours the world looking at animals that he's always wanted to see in person. Uh, and it's <laughs> this show's really fun, so check it out on BBC America. And here you go, the Nerdist Podcast number 345 with Dominic Monahan.
2: Now entering Nerdist.com.
1: Monahan finally on the podcast. Oh my gosh. It's been, you know, we were supposed to court record with you last week, and then Chloe got very sick and had to go to the hospital, and I had to cancel on you an hour before. Yep um and i felt i was worried that the girlfriend thing sounded like a made-up excuse but it really was the reason and I, and you were very cool about it so i, <laughs> it did, I appreciate it it did not that.
2: sound like a, make, a made-up excuse and to, to in the spirit of full disclosure i was actually watching a champions league game at the time <laughs> <laughs> when i found out it was canceled i was like oh the football gods have answered me this is just brilliant um, so I didn't want to give you too much. Why
1: did the football like, gods make Chloe sick? <laughs> you're, why are you using this power?
2: <laughs> it's sort of the Faustian clause. You yeah. know,
1: like, no, it was could great. you please just let me watch this? Everyone in your neighborhood has been in
2: an accident. No. You know, you get kind of relaxed in your house, and you're <laughs> thinking, okay, I could, you know, I could make some food for myself. I could, uh, you know, put the kettle on, but I can't because I have to leave in forty minutes. Yeah. And then it came through that you know I wasn't going to do the podcast. I was like, sweet, I'm going to chill out. My so night's done. So what was, happened with your footballing? Uh, the football, what was the football? It was Champions League, so it would have been quarterfinal. I mean, Manchester United, my team, are, are not in it. They got knocked out in the previous round. But I obviously watched the Champions League, so I don't remember who it was. It was like it would have been either Real Madrid or Barcelona. I would have thought. So when you're watching
1: <clears throat> a what you guys call it what the rest of the world calls a football match
2: <laughs> mm. because we use our feet to kick the ball because you use your feet to kick your As ball not your hands to you
1: guys handball sounds dumb though catchball catch you yeah. mean yeah, catchball yeah. true true catchball and occasionally kickball yeah um it, what is it that
2: you're seeing what are you locking into what are you connecting with in that match well i think i think one of the disconnects that happens in the states not with everyone because it is a growing sport and people are liking it more and more and i think As American teams continue to get better and better, the fan base will get bigger. I think what a lot of people disconnect with is people kind of say, oh, okay, so it's 90 minutes with a break in between, one break in between. So 45 minutes of sport, break, 45 minutes of sport, and the game can end 1-0, which essentially means there's one piece of action. But that's not in any way true because what you've got is one goal, obviously, but then you've got battles occurring on different parts of the field. You might have a really, really fantastic uh, winger, someone who runs up and down the the, sides of the pitch, going up against a really, really tough defender. So that's like a little battle on the pitch that you're watching. Can the defender stay close to that guy? Is he strong enough? Will he have to foul him? All this kind of stuff. You've got battles in midfield. You know, Barcelona are known for dominating the pitch in the middle of the, the pitch. So they basically have the ball in the middle of the pitch and you can't get it off them. Now, if you as a team like Manchester United say, well, we actually own the midfield as well. What you get, what you then get is the ball moving very, very fast in the center of the pitch and people trying to like steal it off each other. And, you know, it's, it's a culmination. It's a, it's a, a buildup of drama. You, you also might get a team like, you know, any team, but certainly teams like Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Juventus, they might pass the ball purposefully. 20 to 30 times on purpose just to look for gaps who's weak what defenders injured who's not running who's not good and then utilize that little weakness to to create a goal what happens in American sports is you know obviously American football you know first down and 10 whatever you, you have to there's a there's a piece of drama occurring right there and then they either make it to that place or the other team push them back and they don't quite make it and that that piece of drama is like twenty or thirty seconds. In basketball, they have twenty-four seconds to shoot the the basket, the the ball. So then you've got twenty-four seconds is going to be a piece of drama. If I think the the miseducation that goes on in in uh, football or soccer in America is because there isn't a piece of noticeable action every thirty seconds, nothing's actually happening, but a lot of things are happening. You know, a lot of little. Little pieces of drama as are playing out. It's it's okay. a subtle game.
1: So so whereas an American might look at soccer and go, that game should be called almost goal because it's a lot of almost scoring. Yes. But that's where all the action lies. And and I know. I mean, you watch uh, when I when I the the couple times that I've actually been in a bar or restaurant, and I've seen it on the on the screen. And I go, it looks like a fucking hard sport because you're just running up back and forth
2: on a massive field. Yeah, I mean, the average the average professional footballer, I think, runs over 12 kilometers a game. <laughs> they're all incredibly fit. And what I like about footballers is when when you look at their level of fitness, they have fantastic cardio, they have good physical strength, but they're not overly big in different areas. You know, American footballers, you might have like huge shoulders and tiny legs or basketball players are eight feet tall with massive shoulders and arms, but their legs aren't big. Soccer players, football players have a fantastically balanced system. You know, their cardio's great. They're, they might not be the most intelligent person off the pitch, but their football in mind, how they understand the game, the quickness of how they read the game is, is you know, really, really impressive. And, you know, they have, you know, strong bodies. They look good. I mean, have you seen David Beckham with his shirt off? He's Yeah, he's a, he's a handsome man. He's definitely a handsome man. He's ripped. Man. He is ripped for sure. Have you uh, ever found <laughs> yourself in a soccer riot? Um, I've been taken into custody (laughs) i think is a good way to say it i don't i don't think my lawyer's on the other line so i
1: murdered is (laughs) is that the correct word i need
2: to be careful with my words i was involved yeah that's not true Uh, let me back up for a second i was in a crowd of people that were involved in a fracas at a football game and manchester united has the most amount of people go into a game in any week in uh, England. There's over 75,000 people go to a game. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when you leave a game, I've been with people before who've lost their shoes. If you're not walking correctly and someone stands on your feet, there's no scenario where you can turn around and walk the other way. It's a sea of people. Oh wow. So I was in a sea of people that were involved in, you know, a little bit of argy bargy with away fans and coppers and the coppers just surrounded what was probably Forty to sixty people, and just took us all away.
1: I love your use of the term coppers, by the way. Coppers, it's yeah. very, uh, it's 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 very it's very steampunk. I like. You it. We
2: do say coppers. I know you guys say cops, and I will say cops in the states. But we will, we will say copper. You know, we will say like, uh, I was, I was, I was. Talking on my phone on the in the car, and I didn't mean to, and I pulled up next to a copper. Like we we don't say it to be twee, we actually do say it. I uh, I also like the word twee.
1: Listen, I think <laughs> you need to do an episode of Dom's Wild Things coming out of a football match. Yeah, man. And just like just grab different fans and and try to interact with them. Like,
2: oh, sure, this one's sleeping,
1: and yeah. it's like the guy's passed out, like the yeah. biggest
2: soccer thug. Well, we, you know, obviously we, we we integrate a little bit of football in every episode, and I wanted the. The integration of football to to feel very varied in its in its elements whether whether I'm playing uh, you know a, a pickup game with kids on the street or whether I actually show up at a game and one of the other things that we wanted to do and that we will do is is go to a legitimate game you know go to Barcelona and watch. Barcelona play Real Madrid and, and I mean, that's, you know, a hundred thousand people and it's Jesus. a huge rivalry and, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. It's, it's, you know, half of the city's annoyed, the other half of the city's celebrating for the rest of the night, you know? So, um, we will do that. The, it, what's, what's interesting with me and footy is that, um, it's transcended the sport for me, you know, like I really enjoy basketball out here. I love the Olympics, uh, I'll watch a little bit of golf if I'm if I've got some free time and I'm you know I've got like a couple of hours I'm not doing anything uh, Wimbledon I'll watch I watch the the big major events but the thing with football is because it's so because it's so part of my upbringing and my personality and stuff like that it's it's it sounds it sounds contrived to say it's more than a sport but it's it's almost I put it in a different category than sport for me it's like lifestyle do you know what I mean uh-huh. it's like um, it's like travel or it's like food or, or something like that. It's something that is always a part of me. I mean, I, I check in with certain things on my phone every day and one of those things is a Manchester United website and just a general football website. I always know what's going on in the world of football and outside of the actual games itself, it's who's, who are they talking about being sold from your team, who are they talking about being transferred into your team, when your manager's going to leave, what the media is saying about your manager, what they're saying about your players, rumors, you know, this guy that used to play for Manchester United, who now plays for Manchester City, j- just today avoided a jail sentence because he pleaded guilty to driving uh, with a disqualified license. Like, that really has nothing to do with footy, but it's always in my wheelhouse because I'm so interested That's in
1: that's as bad as it gets that he was driving without a without an updated
2: license. I think what had happened was I think he I think he'd committed some sort of maybe speeding offense or driving offense and he was banned from driving. And he drove while he was banned from driving. That I mean <laughs> that our athletes have
1: dogs attack each other, they get caught with steroids, drugs, beating up people, mm. smacking around their spouses. And You're like, well, I, and so when you were leading up that story, you're like, well, wow, this is we really big. Sir, get this <laughs> he was driving with an expired license.
2: Well, they did. I mean, you know, some footy I'm not going to name and shame players, but some footy players have done some pretty outrageous stuff in the past. But, uh, you know, they are our superstars, and we don't, we don't, I mean, we don't really have that much competition for other sports. We have, uh, you know, you guys have American football, basketball. What like golf, hockey, golf, baseball. hockey, tennis. Big guys have tennis too, but yeah, you have, we have, you have cricket. Too. We don't have, we don't we really have I mean, much of a trace. I know, of I know a lot of American people have a hard time swallowing soccer, but I mean cricket. You can watch a game for like or a, play a game for five days, yeah. and it can end in a fucking draw. Like, <laughs> what? The, God I have damn just it. wasted uh, five days, and no one gets to win. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on here? You know, but that's it, people. People are so flummoxed by by cricket in uh in america and it's it's essentially baseball but the the rules are just slightly tweaked i mean you know uh the cricketer holding the bat is protecting three pieces of wood behind him if you hit those pieces of wood and knock off a smaller piece of wood on top of them he's out
1: it's like baseball it's like everyone's baseball. better dressed there are indian people and everyone looks generally more educated
2: yeah and th- i mean there is some there are some absolutely fascinating things that go on in cricket like obviously you've got the bowlers who are trying to get the batsmen out, they are. you have a fast bowler who is basically a guy who runs as fast as he can and throws the ball as fast as he can at your, you call them stumps, which the bales. sit uh-huh. on. Then you have slow bowlers. Now, a slow bowler will bowl the ball slow, but he'll spin the ball. You have what's called a leg spin, which is a spin where the ball will bounce, and then as it hits the ground, it'll spin towards your legs. Then you have an off spin, which is where the ball will bounce, and it'll spin away from your legs. Then you have what's called a googly. Do you know what a googly is? No. A, <laughs> a googly. Isn't that where someone sucks
1: their finger and then like jams it into your ear? That's a wet willy, right? That is a wet willy, but it also sounds like it might be a googly. A, a
2: googly is where the bowler shows the cricketer what he's going to do, but then does the exact opposite. So they have that in baseball, right? Like they'll, the, the, the the guy will almost kind of pantomime that he's going to throw something in baseball, but it's the exact opposite. you have that in baseball? I don't... I'm sure there are names for it, I'm sure. It's like a
1: changeup or a slider, yeah, yeah. but I don't it's know. A,
2: yeah, 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 a touch. I don't, so I don't know what
1: any of those terms are. I mean, are. if googly
2: is amazing. If you can spin a googly when you're a kid, like if if you play cricket, pick up cricket with your friends, and you know someone who can throw a googly, that's pretty impressive. Like It's like a card trick. You're going, hey, ace of spades, and they go, okay, cool, and you go, no, jack of diamonds. I think it... I feel like... <laughs> That's That
1: sounds very fancy. I think in America, that would just mean that the pitcher threw, like, pitched at the guy's balls. Mm. <laughs> just, like, throw it right at the guy's that balls. That happens.
2: I've seen, I've seen that in baseball where they throw it right at him and he pull off the helmet and run towards him. And
1: yeah, stuff. yeah, and then, mm-hmm. and then the dugout's empty and then yeah, all fun. of a sudden it's, uh, like it's a it's a big man. I can't believe
2: the baseball players are the more highly played sportsmen in America, whereas basketball and American football seems to have much more of a presence for me. Um, well, <laughs> basketball players are pretty well paid. Uh, football players.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I I do know that baseball players, though. There are some guys. It's like, oh, he's got hundred and twenty million. million. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it uh, is it um, capitalized in that way with soccer player with football players in England or is there sort of a a general? Are they well paid but not like astronomically well, well paid? Well,
2: I mean, to to be you know to be the the top in your team, uh, you know international players like David Beckham or Wayne Rooney or Ryan Giggs or, you know, these superstars like Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, I'm going to guess someone like Messi probably earns something like 700,000 a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, he banks. And then he also is sponsored by nike and adidas so they're making a shit ton of money too. they are making an inordinate amount of money i mean there's a reason why soccer or football is called the world's game i mean you know all of south america plays it all of europe plays it well, we don't all understand of africa that. plays it
1: because then well well that can't be true because baseball in america is the world series right so we are playing i mean <laughs> it's amazing that every year yeah. teams from this country competing in the World Series, but I think that's just how good we are. Yeah, I'm
2: always impressed that it it, it seems that every year an American team wins the World (laughs) Series. I mean, that is phenomenal.
1: I know there's a dumb reason for that, that I'm sure it's like, well, in the 1920s, that's because blah, blah, blah. I'm sure there's a reason for it. So I don't care what it is, so no one has to tell me online. Like, this is
2: why. We're being facetious. Also, in in the NBA, you become the world champions, right? But they're (laughs) not playing against, like, Spain and Greece and no, Turkey no, no. And Brazil. That one we'd probably win at, I you think. Were. I think yeah. we're pretty good at basketball. Although the Slavic teams are good, right? Like, I didn't realize that countries like Russia and the Czech Republic and Slovenia and all these places are good basketball teams. They just
1: have these giant, like, 10-foot hulks.
2: Yeah. Andre the Giant type people. <laughs> just, <laughs> Hey, let's talk Twitter, because you really helped me out with my Twitter. Did I help you out
1: on Twitter? Okay.
2: We, um, at Dom's wild things at Dom's wild things on Twitter. Yeah. I, uh, I, I recognized that, that you had a, a phenomenal presence on Twitter and I was like, how do you do that? And you said a few real succinct points about it. You were like, well, one of the major things that makes sense with your, with your, uh, tweeting is that you do it regularly so mm-hmm. that people know that they can check in and you've got some activity going on. Sure. I also realized that, f- uh, photos are a big thing like if you send a photo it'll usually get retweeted because people want it's an easy way to pass it around yeah and especially
1: with where where you're going and what you're doing you must have an incredible library of photographs yeah yeah, i've
2: got a ton of stuff and then uh it's it's also the it's the amount of times that you're retweeted it's almost it's like a bacterial effect right like you get retweeted it hits everyone else then they retweet it it hits all their people then they retweet it it hits all their people you know I had said to people a long time ago, when I hit a hundred <clears> thousand followers, I think I'm on like ninety-three thousand now, I'll post up some photos of Lord of the Rings pictures that no one's ever <gasps> seen. And then I'll keep doing that. Like when I reach benchmark moments, two fifty, five hundred thousand
1: and you know what's you know what I like about that is that sometimes, you know, when you see people go, uh, and this this doesn't happen as much anymore, but but certainly when Twitter first started to get popular, people would go, if I get fifty thousand followers, I'm gonna donate a thousand dollars to charity. And then people go, well, if you have that money, why don't you just give it to charity? You know, like, but to say like, "Hey, here's sort of like a bonus thing, like Lord of the Rings picture." <clears throat> that's fucking cool.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's fun. I I I struggle with Twitter here and there. Like, I think my well, I have a few things about Twitter that I don't like. One of my least favorite things is yesterday, for example, I have this I have this lighter that I just I don't smoke, but I I have this lighter that I use if I ever need to light candles or anything like that, and it's a super cool lighter, and it broke. So I posted up some photos yesterday on Twitter and I was like, Hey guys, like this broke. I'm not really sure how, do you guys have any idea how I could fix it? And like who I would go and see and stuff. The Twitter genie, the tweet, the Twitter genie. And everyone's like helping me out and stuff like that. And then someone said, Oh, you have a lighter. Do you smoke? And I wrote back, no, I don't, I don't smoke. I just, I have a favorite lighter. It's like a gadget. When I travel, sometimes I need to make fire and stuff like that. 10 minutes later, someone else writes, Oh, do you smoke? I was like, no, I don't smoke. Like, there's something about... Someone will only look at the last two or three tweets that you do. They'll never look back at your stuff. And I'll do Q&As all the time. And guaranteed, guaranteed, 55 to... No, 50 to 60% of the tweets will be questions that I always get asked or questions that I've just
1: answered. That definitely happens. But also, if you're just directly at replying people, those tweets are not visible... Unless that person is following both of you, Mm. unless they go to the timeline that is all of your tweets. But that's not a default. Like if someone just goes to your profile page, they're going to see public tweets or they're going to see tweets are going to show up in their timeline that are only people that they're following. Mm. So that was something that uh, it didn't used to be that way, and then Twitter condensed it to keep the timelines a little bit cleaner. So what
2: would I do? Let's like, say I'm doing a Q&A and someone says, what was your favorite scene in Lord of the Rings? And I wanted everyone to know about it. Do I take off the personal name of the person who tweeted that and just answer the question? There are a couple of ways. If it's a short answer,
1: you can... And you know, surprisingly, there's no way to do this from Twitter directly, um, But to but you're essentially... Uh, you're quoting the tweet and then answering it. So you'll answer in the front part, and then you'll see the retweet of the question is one way to do it, mm. uh, so that everyone sees the question and the answer. But if it's a longer answer and you can't fit in on one hundred and forty characters, then you might just say, um, you know, uh, via and then the <sighs> user's name, right? And then you just put the answer in there. Right. You can also put a peer, you can also put a period. In front of, if you're just replying directly to someone, and that's the first thing in your tweet, you can put a period in front of that, which keeps the username from being the first thing in the tweet, which then makes it public oh, and visible and everyone to everyone. Is, yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. So that's something.
2: And then, how come I see people tweet a ton of characters, and
1: I, I can only do
2: 140? What's that about?
1: Well, some people have like, uh, like you know, they, they can they can use an apps the apps that are like tweet longer. And then it'll tweet longer and then there'll be, you know, an ellipse and then it'll take you to the full tweet. Right.
2: Um, So, but in general, you're, you know, that's what it is. And then I, uh, another frustrating thing is if someone asks you a question and the question is relatively long. Yeah. I'll sometimes take that question because I want to answer it correctly and slightly tweak that question, not, not change the question. But they might write something like, hey, I heard you going on the Nerdist. Please tell Chris I said hello. Sure. What's your favorite thing about doing a podcast? So I might take out, uh, please tell Chris I said hello so that I can answer correctly. And the person gets annoyed. They're like, why would you change my question? I can can help you with that. I only have 140 characters.
1: I'll help you with that. Uh, You write RT before you want to retweet something. And if you change anything in their tweet, you write MT, which means modified tweet. Oh, okay. So you're saying... I've modified this tweet in some way, MT colon, you know, their username and their whatever you've modified from them. All right. Which is generally just a courtesy of saying, like, I took liberties with this person's tweet, so I just want to make sure that people know that I'm not representing it 100% the way right. that they wrote it.
2: I tweaked the tweet.
1: Yes, yes. yes. So MT. It's a tweet tweak. Yeah, MT, modified tweet. What's your favorite thing about Twitter? Um, the my My favorite thing about it has been connecting with people, I mean, basically getting people on the podcast, connecting with people, finding out people that I really like and respect might be following me so then I can connect with them and say, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? Like, it's been a really great way to connect with people mm. that I always want. I mean, I kind of, I guess what Twitter was supposed to do, like people that I want to meet or like connecting with you on Twitter or yeah. connecting with, you know, whoever else. It, It's actually helped me um get to know a lot of people that I don't think I would have gotten to know otherwise yeah. Get them on the podcast. Get them on the shows. Just be pals with them online.
2: Yeah, I mean, my one of my favorite footballers growing up, Gary Lineker, who is an England international, follows me on Twitter. Yeah, um, so there you go. Brett Easton Ellis, one of my favorite authors sure. of all time, follows me on Twitter. I was I was able to direct messages with Brett Easton Ellis and ask him to recommend books to me, which he did.
1: Here's what we're gonna do. You ready for yeah, this? Go you're, we're gonna talk. We're, you're gonna talk to Peter Jackson and Brett Easton Ellis, and we're gonna do uh, less than zero of the Rings, <laughs> and it's basically, <laughs> it's basically. Uh, Mary and uh, Sam and Frodo and and then it's basically a uh, and then uh, all of them it's just the less than zero story but with hobbits <laughs> that and sounds
2: that sounds like a brilliant film
1: I think we really need to make this happen um,
2: yeah and and Elijah was actually saying to me I saw him last week Elijah said we were talking about the power of Twitter and he was like dude like I'm gonna slightly make his story a little bit vague on purpose he said that there was a film that he heard about which is which was not able to be released for some reason it was, it was held back by the studio and stuff. And he then went on Twitter and said, Hey guys, I heard about this film a couple of years ago. I'd really love to see it. I heard that it's kind of locked up with the studio and they're not releasing it. Does anyone know anything about it? The director then fa- started following Elijah. They direct messes with each other. And, and he was like, Elijah, you know, can you help me out? If you could raise the awareness about it, that would be great. So then Elijah continued to tweet about it. And now the director's in a position where he's able to talk to the studio and hopefully wrangle it out of the studio just from a little Twitter exchange. It's, there
1: you know? is, that's what I was saying before about the Twitter genie is that, I mean, it helps if you are fortunate enough to have a lot of followers. But if I'm trying to locate something or if I have a question about something that I feel that is too specific for Google to really give the practical knowledge, <clears throat> um, it's a, it's good. You know, if it's a specific, you know, like when I was first, you know, working on the, during the nurse website, if it was a coding question or like a specific error message or some type of. You know, if you guys run into this problem with WordPress, like stuff like that, you'd get information. Uh, <laughs> customer service has been really great, to yeah, be a, yeah. And almost you have to be careful not to abuse that because sure. you don't want to be the guy that's complaining at his followers all the time about, you know, oh, I, you know, this airline fucked me over. Like you don't want to be that guy because sure. then people are like, "Fuck you." Yeah. yeah. Um. But but one thing that uh, that did kind of make me go, "Holy shit!" about the power of Twitter, which was um, a friend of my mom's has a daughter who needed a kidney. And they had a Facebook post. My mom said, "Can you post this on Twitter?" And I said, "Sure." And they fucking found a donor. That's Like amazing. that to me was that's life saving stuff. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And great. and and it's not. And you know, my mom was like, "Oh my god, thank you so much for doing this. Like, thank me for doing this. I just yeah. I wrote a sentence. Like, I didn't even <laughs> I didn't do anything. Yeah, I yeah. just I can't I can't even really take responsibility for it. That's but it, it but it but but that that's when you see the power of it, and you go, oh my god. When it works the right way, and that's the thing about Twitter, is that it doesn't necessarily work the way all the businesses and the marketing people want. Like right. they think, okay, well, all you got to do is just tweet out something, and you know, if you have a million followers, then a million people are going to show up at this one time. And it's like, nah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't really work that way. Twitter's Twitter's real power is in the pyramid of your network. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a 100,000 people following you, but each of those people only has one person following them, your pyramid's very shallow. Right. But if you have a 1,000 people following you, but those 1,000 people each have a 1,000 or more people following them, then that's where the network gets really powerful. They're going to retweet it to their 1,000 and their 1,000 and so forth, and then all of a
2: sudden it becomes like a crazy pyramid scheme. Yeah, yeah. Um, I read that uh, Justin Bleeber... Has uh, over over twenty million followers. Do you and mind if I just give a kiss to Joan? Yeah, right? of course.
1: I want to. I want to do your show. I would love to. Okay, I love you. <laughs> Legend. Um, she is. I'm sorry. Whenever whenever I catch Joan walking by, I have to. No, it's all. I good. have to make out with the window.
2: I'd like to make out with the window right now, actually. <laughs> um, so when Justin Bieber tweeted something in? Uh No, just, I read that Justin Bieber has over 20 million followers and that he gets 40,000 followers a day. Oh, fucking crazy. That's insane, huh? I hope they help he also him. Has, he also has a monkey. <laughs> that he's That
1: is stuck in quarantine. Yeah, that's a bummer. I mean, the trick... Here's the thing. Th- th- that always seems to be the marker of, oh, everything might not be okay. If yeah. you remember when Michael Jackson got a chimp, that's yeah. when people were sort going...
2: You know, yeah, yeah. He's got a monkey. You know, uh Paris Hilton got some sort of strange lemur at one point, like a bizarre. No, that was Nicole Richie. Oh, was it some sort of? <laughs> yeah. Come some, on, you guys. <laughs> some sort Who's of like, crazy tiny little marmozet or monkey type thing. Um I think there's a few things happening with that. First of all, like you're not <clears throat> probably making the best responsible decisions because you're traveling a lot you're living in your own bubble, how, bubble, how is that monkey going (laughs) to... Bubble. Well done. How is that monkey going to deal with that crazy life? But the more scary thing for me in terms of their state of mind is it almost affects this slightly Machiavellian thing. Like, I am so powerful, I will have my own monkey. I will
1: command the wild animal kingdom. Yes, uh you know like Hugh Hefner had monkeys at the playboy right. man it's like they're, they're it's always and i under, i get it like they're cool you want to have it sure. like they're neat but it's
2: it is irresponsible it, though it
1: is irresponsible we're not fucking kings no. you know like we should not have wild animals living in domestic situations no
2: and there there are a there are a lot i i mean me personally there, there's almost an infinite amount of cool animals out there that in in so many different Fantasy worlds. I would love to keep. I'd love to have a fucking black panther. Can you imagine rolling up at a club <laughs> with a black panther like we're full tonight. I'm like, okay. I'm pretty sure my black panther wants to come in. And either the animal or the militant group, either gonna, one. You're g- getting into it's that club. Cause some sort of problem. Either one. You know, tigers and crocodiles and all those things. They're they're amazing animals, but they they are much more powerful, beautiful, and at peace when they're in their own habitat. You
1: know, you know it's funny. I was just having a conversation with a group of people the other day about. How much I hated, how much I hated Curious George, right? Because it's like it is. The, Curious George is the saddest story of a monkey who was living happily, and then a fucking guy, some some American guy in a yellow suit with a giant, I have you know, I, I I'm I'm a big American hat, comes and takes him, mm, kidnaps him, kidnaps him, and then. A lot of the tales of Curious George are him being sad and just trying to get away. Yeah, because he probably wants to go back home. No, it's a bummer, Curious George. Yeah. And it's sort, it's sore, it's so, hey, how's it going? It's such a bummer that uh, that people look at <laughs> people look at animals and they're like, oh, I should just, I should just own that. And you're like, well, should it not be in its natural habitat with other like creatures? And so you. You know, I—that's—I think this is a natural, but uh, a natural but organic segue to your show. Is that you know, if people see your show, and they're like, "Why is that actor playing around with all those animals?" But they might not know that this is actually a lifelong pursuit of yours, yeah. and not not just a, not just a situation where a network said we're doing an animal
2: show. You're famous. Do you want to do an animal show? (laughs) Like you brought this to, like this was something that you always wanted to do. Yeah. And I would challenge pretty much anyone out there to have those amazing experiences that I've had and behave and interact in the way that I did without it being one of the more important things in your life. Like you can't be casual about putting your, Safety at risk and doing a show like that unless it is a real passion project you know I mean I really danced around with it I mean I uh I've loved animals all my life I've kept a lot of different animals all my life but I'm an actor you know my my ambitions in my career outside of wild things are, are so incredibly strong and and not anywhere near fulfilled yet I mean obviously I've had the opportunity to work with some real luminaries in the business but you know I want to work with Spielberg I want to work with Scorsese I want to work with Aronofsky and Paul Thomas Anderson and all these amazing auteur directors and I was very very nervous and and still am a little nervous about the idea of of moving into what is now seen to be a kind of hosting gig because I don't want people to go oh he's a host now you know I mean I've ran into that at the start of this year, people are going, oh, so you're hosting now. That's, that's your deal. Like, so if Ryan Seacrest doesn't do anything, maybe they'll ask you to do (laughs) stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. It was just one thing. I just did a thing. It was a passion project, something that I love, something that I believe in. And, excuse me, I wouldn't, I would do other passion projects. I'd certainly do a show about, about football, about soccer. I'd do a show about amazing restaurants around the world. I'm a, I'm a foodie nut, you know, but, the animal things at the top of the list in terms of a passion project. And um, I think the death of Steve Irwin was a huge deal for me because I loved his work, but that, that was the trigger to go, okay, well, if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? And what does that say about how you you felt about Steve Irwin's death, which was devastating to me, Uh, but more than anything else, the gift for me of standing in my garden and experiencing that, that moment with animals, whatever that may be on a, on a daily basis, whether that's me just watching a a bee go pollinate a flower and fly away or, or watching a a bobcat run through Griffith Park or, or picking up a rattlesnake, whatever those tiny little interactions are with the natural world, it's, it's so fulfilling to me. I, I imagine myself as like a, you know, a glass of water that's half full. And then when I have these interactions, I feel it fill up. I feel it do something to me in the same way that it might if you were to see a loved one or hear from someone who you've not heard from for a while or have an amazing experience, you know. So making a show about it selfishly for me was huge. But I also, and that's what's been amazing about Twitter, Chris, is I wanted people to feel differently about those animals and feel differently about travel and football and street food. People are really scared of things like street food. They're scared to eat on the street. Now, that might be true in... Certain parts of LA where you, where you might not want to do it, but in certain parts of Asia, that's the only way to eat. You don't go to restaurants in the day; they're closed. No one's in there. Yeah. And at nighttime, you wouldn't go there either. There's no there's no scene. What you want to do is walk through the streets, grab something real quick in your hands, continue to walk around, walk down the the banks of the river and stuff. And that's the cleanest, freshest way to eat. But there's there's a lot of myths that are associated with those things, you know. So I wanted to break some of those myths, you know.
1: So you're breaking you're breaking. Food myths, animal myths, soccer hooligan myths. Yes,
2: and that's- very important. And and, <laughs> and the actor myth. I mean, you know, I think there, there are, you know, in in any profession, there are people who are exceptional at their job. There are people that drag their way through it. There are people that have other interests. There are people that are only interested in that job. You know, I mean, J.J. Abrams is a director, but he also has a, inordinate amount of interest in so many different things. And I think some people just assume that directors just go to work and, you know, work on set and that's their life. But also the same with actors. Some actors are just kind of, you know, model type folks that happen to look good on camera and they do an okay job at learning their lines. And other actors have, you know, someone like Marlon Brando was was profound in so many different ways. And I'm nowhere near that level by any means. But what I also wanted to show was like, there isn't a one dimensional element to anyone. And there isn't a one dimensional element to me. I'm an actor. It's an interest of mine. I'm also interested in people and places and travel and things and animals. And You do seem to keep
1: landing these jobs that put you in exotic locations. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. You go to New
1: Zealand, you go to
2: Hawaii, yeah, you
1: yeah. go to
2: Vietnam. And- yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I do like travel. We traveled all, I, I traveled all my life. I mean, you know, I was born in Berlin, Germany, moved to Dusseldorf when I was four moved to Munster another part of Germany when I was eight or nine moved back to Manchester where my parents are from until I was 17 then started moving all around the country working lived in Ireland lived in France lived in New Zealand you know traveled everywhere so it's just part of my blood and um, I don't know people are people you know I always I, I, I like that element as well I mean I don't speak a lot of the languages in these countries and we've been in some pretty dodgy situations where no one understands us. We don't understand them. They're obviously asking for things like money or food, or we have to give them something to get to the next place. And what you, what you notice if you engage with those people and you smile and you have eye contact and you connect is that, you know, they're all just people. So you should
1: not start yelling and flapping your arms wildly? Yeah, yeah,
2: don't don't start. with your evil blue eyes. <laughs> what do you not understand? Don't get physically violent. Why do people. they keep shooting our party? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's one of the real amazing experiences about going away and doing wild things is that you know, people are people, kids are kids, they all just wanna play, they wanna have fun, they wanna laugh. If you show them a rubbish magic trick that they know they know it's not magic, they know it's a trick. They all want to laugh and have fun. They all want to try it. You know, I mean, things like, you know, like my hair in Africa, like little kids would lose their mind putting their hands in my hair because they don't have hair like that in Africa, you know. Looking at your eyes, they don't have eyes like that. And then you pick up a football, you go play football with them. They're all like running around screaming. And these are kids who, you know, obviously have really tough lives. They don't necessarily know where their food's coming from. They don't know where their water's coming from. They're scantily clad. They're, They're going through different levels of, you know, health concerns. And you think, wow, in the West, these kids would be hospitalized and they'd be in a real tough way. And in Africa, they're like, yeah, it's just life. We'll just get on with it. Instead of living to our 80s, we might live to our 40s, but at least we had a good time doing it. You know, I mean, I, I got a lot of admiration seeing those people, you know.
1: And so you, I mean, you, obviously people who travel a lot tend to have a little bit more dimension than people who don't leave their own town for their whole lives because you just... You kind of need to, I mean, and it's really amazing that we, I mean, we take it for granted all the time, but really just in the last, you know, century in the history of humanity has travel been pretty much available to everyone. Mm. I mean, you could take boat trips before and people could get around, you know, if you were, but, but now you really can, you know, with a few small hurdles, anyone can pretty much go anywhere. Yeah. And... We don't,
0: because <laughs> yeah, it's
2: scary. a lot of people don't. I mean, I was with a friend from LA who I took on a business trip to Germany and we were at a table of, of uh, probably 12 to 14 people and the, the bill came in, the check, and obviously we were in Germany and we are all pulling out our money and my friend said, don't they take real money? And I said, what do you mean? She said, don't they take dollars? And I said, first of all, real money. <laughs> the Deutschmark Mark has been around infinitely longer than the dollar. And why would you want that? Why why, why would you be so t- demonstrative with your with your nationality to be like, well, I've I've never been so offended in my life. They well, don't take real money. I
1: think that's probably why Americans don't typically have the best reputation other places because we're pretty, you know, we're we're our country is large enough and we're kind of isolated. And so we are in a sense, we're sort of spoiled children in that way. And we're like, why can't everything just be that, you know? And so, uh, it's, it's funny to, to, to go to like Europe and stuff. And then if it, just to talk to people about what their idea of like the typical American is, we are yeah. like, Oh, doesn't everyone have a cowboy hat and yeah, shoot yeah.
2: guns? And yeah, they, yeah. you know, the typical no. Americans like, you know, the, the 10 gallon hat and the, uh, loud, the, the huge camera lens and stuff like that. I mean, I, I've lived in LA now for 10 years and I, I absolutely love America. It's a, it's an amazing country and fascinating in so many different ways. I, you know, I love the positivity here. I love the people here. They're so nice. The service industry is amazing. The choice of food and the way that they treat you is fantastic. But, um, yeah, the, the travel element is, is something that you guys don't do that much. I mean, for me, travel is all about the escape. It's about escaping what you know. I don't want my own currency. I don't want my own language. I don't want my own food. I don't want my own schedule. I want to do different stuff. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, not, not necessarily Americans, just a lot of people, I mean, I, I, English people are guilty of this terribly in places like Spain and, and Greece and France. They want to go from England, fly to a place that has better weather, but eat an English breakfast and eat, <laughs> you know, shepherd's pie and have a, have a Sunday roast on a Sunday. And you like... Just stay in England. Just get a sunbed, and you know, like, <laughs> I need do, to beat your and your eat your breakfast in your sunbed. You know, so <laughs> people feel differently about travel, and and it's all it's like a fear thing as well. I mean, I, I there are, there are things that I'm that I'm scared of because they're genuinely scary. Like if I was in the ocean and I saw a shark, it would scare me. But I also I'm aware that to a certain degree walking towards things that are unknown, walking towards things that you are potentially scared of has, has a real element of value to it. The payoff is huge, you know? And I think there's something about that with, with travel. You you step into the unknown and you come out the other side a different person. That is huge for like at a cellular level. I think that's a big deal. You. Know?
1: But you still, I still think it's important. Uh, I imagine it's still important to be as prepared as you can be sure. and not just like, Oh, I'm just gonna walk into that den over there. You know, like there's a different. I think some people misinterpret that. They're like, "Oh, I, I shouldn't jump out of a, a high speed vehicle." No, no, no. I know that's
2: unknown. No, you still have to take,
1: <laughs> you still have to take precautions and right. still be
2: smart. You know? Yeah, and I mean, it's another thing about Twitter. You know, people say to me. How could you pick up that spider? How could you pick up that snake? Aren't you aren't you scared? You're going to get bit. Why you know? Why do you go around just picking up all these animals? I mean, the the drama of the show, the the um, the the kind of, the conceit almost of the show is to say to the audience, this is very much more dangerous than what you're actually than what is actually occurring. You know, because, like for instance, um, you know. The snake in the tree, this huge 14-foot python in this tree in the in the Laos episode. When you're going to look for the water bag. Yeah, when I go look for the water bag. Oh, in Vietnam, in Vietnam. Um, you know, I didn't estimate that it was going to be that big. I thought it was probably going to be about eight feet or so. It was much bigger than I expected. But I did pay close attention to its attitude very early on in the scene. And I knew very quickly that this was a snake that wasn't going to get tweaked. It wasn't going to suddenly bite me and lose its mind and cause a massive scene. It was it was relaxed. It, its heart rate was very chilled out. It was, it was calm. I'm not going to say that on the show. I'm not going to say to the viewers, hey, this massive snake is actually just a teddy bear. So don't even worry about the scene. <laughs> we want to create drama. We want to show you that it's exciting. You know, in some of the scenes with the cobra, we have me, the cobra, and then the camera in that order. Now, what that does for an audience watching it is it doesn't necessarily show you extremely accurately how close or how far away the Cobra is to me. Cobra is much closer to me than it would be in a, in a real safe scenario, but it's not as close as to be hugely dangerous, but the audience doesn't know that you you wouldn't say that anyway. It's TV, you know, right? I mean, someone again on Twitter said to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, I stopped watching your show because every time you say you're going to go look for something, you find it. And I go, yeah, that's the show. (laughs) That's the drama of the show. If you want to watch people looking for something
1: and not finding it, watch Finding Bigfoot. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Watch Walking Through a Forest for a Night. Like, we, it's, you know, there's an Indiana, we talked about Indiana Jones a lot when we were coming up with the idea for the show. He has a mission. He falls off. He gets distracted. He meets a beautiful woman. He meets a charismatic gentleman. He runs through a, you know, he does all these things that distract him, but his mission is, you know, that that thing, that thing in the box, that thing in the tomb, whatever it is. I always have a target mission, what I'm doing, but I'm willing to let myself get swayed. But, you know, it's obviously a conceit to say to people in the show, you know, we're looking for it. I hope I find it. We don't know if we will find it. We're, we're heading towards that end goal. Now, there's been times where we haven't necessarily found it in the way that we've wanted or we haven't found it until the last minute, or what we're trying to do with the animal, we don't do. Look, with the bees, I was trying to harvest honey. Couldn't get anywhere near the bees when I got up there. Not only was I not going to move around 140 foot up in this tree, but the bees were so aggressive that any time I did, you know, move my hand towards them, they just buzzed towards me. And I was like, we can't. Like, these guys, are, you know, two million bees, they're going to suffocate me at the at the very least to kill me. Yeah. So we couldn't do that. So sometimes the, the mission changes, but we always have a mission and we're always heading towards that mission. Um,
1: do you, it's funny because the same guy who complained at you for finding stuff every week, if you didn't find stuff every week, like, I'm going to stop watching your show because right. you don't find anything every week. Jeez Louise. Um, but, uh, have, have you had to respond to people? Cause even when, when, when Steve Irwin died, I noticed that there were people who were like, well, he shouldn't have been fucking around with animals. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. is there a, you know, have people responded that way where they're like, you who do you think you are to go and start touching animals? Maybe they don't want to be. Yeah, yeah,
2: I, I have. And, I, you know, with, with respect, but not that much respect, I would say that that is the ignorance of that person. I mean, if you knew anything about Steve Irwin, you knew that he was highly educated in terms of animal behavior. Yeah. He was a trained herpetologist. He was someone who had spent his entire life with dangerous animals. He was responsible. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was involved in a freak occurrence you know yeah I'm in no way near as qualified as Steve Irwin but to the guy on the street I have a general knowledge that is much better in terms of how to approach a snake how to approach a spider how to approach a scorpion and and do it safely do I put myself in in harm's way yeah but I don't I don't do it I don't do it in a way that ever uh manipulates the animal to make it feel bad. As soon as we know that the animal's having a tough time or is getting overly stressed, we just stop the scene, you know? And uh, I'm kind of the animal guy on set. So with my crew, I'll say to them, this is the distance that you can come towards the animal. This is what we're going to use as like a safety word. This is is when we're going to throw down all our equipment and run. And the animal is the king in that scene, you know? Um, Also like, you know, I don't want to die by any means. I love my life. I love what, I, I love what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I want to be a granddad and sit in a rocking chair and, you know, tell my grandchildren about all the adventures that I've been on and find out about all their adventures. But in a slightly more cosmic way of thinking about it, my relationship with the natural world is something that I value and love. And if in some way my... my exploring of that relationship involves me heading down an avenue that in, in which I don't come back from, I'm, I'm, I've made my peace with being okay with that particular thing. I, I don't want to do this by any means, but look, if I got hit, if I got killed in a car accident, I would be super fucking bummed out. <laughs> if 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 I died doing what I love in this in this next show, or you know, died on set acting. Like I would hope my friends and my peers around me would say it's a it's a bummer that he died, hopefully. But he died doing what he loved. Who who doesn't want to die doing what they love, you know? So I don't want that to be like an epitaph or anything. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I'm cool with it, you know, I'm cool with it. I know that when I handle a cobra, there's a chance that I'll get bit. If I get bit, I'm willing to take those health concerns because I'm responsible and I and I've made that choice. I would never get bitten by a cobra and go, "I can't believe this happens to me. I can't believe you guys would let me do this." Like, <laughs> I know, I know the risks. Why so. does everything happen to me? Exactly. <laughs> well, it, why co- um, cobra. You know, what I was going to ask because I, I I know this podcast reaches far and wide, and it reaches far and wide into the world that could help me out. I've been looking for a film mm-hmm. for probably. Probably 10 years now. Okay. It's called The Flight of the Dragons. Okay. It's an animated film, probably probably mid-1970s to late-1970s. It's got a Bakshi-like animated okay. quality. John Earl James? James Earl John? John, 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 Earl James? John? James, Earl. James Earl Jones, the James actor James Earl Jones? James Earl Jones plays the evil dragon in it, and it's the story of a young man who excuse me, plays a board game called The Flight of the Dragons and falls into the board game and finds when he's in the board game, he becomes a dragon that has to eat gold, learn how to fly, battle this bad dragon. It was one of my brother and I's favorite films when we were a kid. We had it on, I don't even think we had it on VHS. I think we kept borrowing it from the video shop on VHS. I don't think it's ever made its way to DVD. But if anyone has it on DVD and they get in touch with you, I'd be willing to do some sort of swap. Sure. Lord of the Rings, Blu-ray, DVD swap. Lost. You have to
1: come live with us for a year. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Well, That's how bad weird. do you want it?
2: That's yeah. It. All right. Let's see. Let's see if anyone has it. There's some movie collectors out there, right?
1: <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm sure someone will be
2: able to find it. Have you not been to like Rocket Video or Mondo or any of the... Uh... I've been to a couple of places in LA, video stores. They've not had it. I've been to that place on Sunset that stocks...
1: I feel, com- I feel good about this because you know the name, you know the cast. Like, it's better than like, oh, there was this dragon thing. Yeah, I yeah, don't no, know. Someone's,
2: someone's got it. What Flight about you, anything like that in your life, anything vague where you're like, I don't know what this is, but I,
1: there, you know, a lot of times for me, it's, it's songs, which it's impossible because unless, if they're obscure, uh, the only thing that you have is what people had for generations before ours, which is that I would have to sing it and go, no, it's the, da, 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 da. and then you hope someone goes, Oh yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But it's really hard with a song because there's no context and so it's like I don't know when it was released. I don't know what the band is. I just have the melody in my head. Oh, you head. Just have the melody, not lyrics. Yeah, so no lyrics. I just I just have a couple songs where there are melodies in my head. And I've I've just kind of gotten comfortable, like that part of my brain, which I would normally be able to scoop that out and just clear out that space. I know that I may live my whole life, and the only way that I'll ever find out what those songs are now. Is if I happen to be in the right place at the right time and it comes on a speaker and then I can quickly now go to yeah, the phone and Shazam like it. Shazam it or something and uh, or some, or just yell does anybody know what this is? Yeah yeah. Uh But that but that's you know so you, you at least have the luxury of that's like true.
2: ah yeah, this is a movie people are gonna know what this movie is and someone out there will find this movie. A little bit more to go on with me. I, I've had a lot of like classical songs in my head that I can't place because you can't just go onto Google put in a line. No. And it'll spit it out. I just like you I have a piece of a melody, and I'm like, oh shit! I don't know you almost might have to learn to play piano, and then, and then start playing it for people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was doing on the way over here. I was doing the Imperial March from Star Wars as a cricket. Do I hear that? Yes, do I, I really I do. do. Let me, let me make sure I'm not too close to the mic. Okay, come okay, here. Some water. You have to, you have to slightly moisten your lips, gentlemen.
0: You're listening to cricket concerts on <laughs> K Nerdist. Coming up is a selection of the Imperial March by the cricket band Dominic Monaghan. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Pretty good, right?
0: Don't forget that we will be handing out stickers at the book fair. It just feels like a, it feels like a classical yeah, what station. Yeah, what is it with
2: those classical uh, DJs where the, everything is just so um, welcome to Radio Four?
1: I know my friend Steve Callahan. We were we did comedy in college together, and now he fucking runs Family Guy. But he used to have this bit. He used to have this bit when we were in college, where he would do the, uh, it was the monster truck pull on the classical station.
0: Where he'd go, <laughs> don't forget to come out this Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Big Daddy Bart and Truckzilla will be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's Steve Callahan's
2: bit. Every single one of my alerts on my phone is something from. Steve. Well, the, the, the classic radio DJ
1: is the guy. Like it, it's, it's almost like the uh, the mo behind it is somewhat, They don't want to. They don't want to disturb their audience. They don't want to upset their audience. Their audience likes this ambient, gorgeous, you know, lyricless music, and so they always sound like someone who's just creeped in the room to be like.
0: I'm gonna, just going to check on yeah, you before you time. go to bed. I'm sorry. Just wanted you to know that was Mozart. Yeah, yeah. Just
2: wanted
0: you to know before that was Chopin. Yeah, yeah. With etude number 10. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, backing away. Back. i going to turn the
2: lights out. Yeah. <laughs> and they just get very... Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm going to watch like, you while you sleep.
2: As I've got older, uh, I, I, in no means do I know anything about classical music, but as I've got older, I mean, when I was, you know in my late teens to early 20s, is I just completely wrote off classic music. It's shit. And now you get it's it. It's boring. And now I'm like, that is lovely when I'm like hanging by my pool and I don't necessarily want to connect to something really deeply. I just want something in the background that's nice and, you know, makes me feel good in the sun and, and you know, jumping around in the water. And uh, it's epic. I also watch two things. I've got, there's a great website called topdocumentaryfilms.com that just has free scrolling films. oh wow and uh, yeah, and there's one there's two films on there, one called The Genius of Beethoven and the Genius of Mozart that is just spellbinding. I mean what those guys did, you know I mean they are both geniuses in a lot of different ways, but I mean just just some of the some of the ideas that these guys had in terms of music I mean could argue that well, I I would argue that for me Beethoven's more interesting not only the fact that he went deaf and wrote his greatest uh, pieces when he was deaf, but also like he from an intellectual point of view started to do stuff like okay, I've achieved that now I'm going to do it in reverse with both hands moving inwards and then both <laughs> hands moving outwards just to see if I can do it just from a just from a kind of physical point of view can I achieve that thing and. Oh, man, those guys just blow my
0: mind. Well, know? it
1: is, and, and when you look at classical music, you really understand how mathematical music is.
0: Right.
1: Just in, you know, all of these pieces have to be placed here and then on these spaces were placed here, but they're in perfect, mm. in you know, intervals. Yeah. And uh, and so it's, I, I love how mathy music is. Yeah. Like that to me makes it really fucking cool. So you cool. would
2: imagine someone at that <clears throat> at that level of of pure genius like Beethoven and, and Mozart in a modern day world would be doing, they'd be doing the Rubik's Cube while doing Sudoku, whilst doing a podcast, <laughs> you know, they're that kind of right. brain, you know, that kind of amazing thing. Do you play anything? I play a little guitar and a little piano, um, but not enough, certainly not enough piano to impress anyone. I'm always really deflated. Like people, I give people a tour in my house and they see my piano, I go, oh, you have a piano? I go, yeah. They go, oh, you, can you play? I go, oh, I can play a little thing. They go, play as something, play, and I go... They think Fuck. you're being modest, and you're like, oh, like, oh really. shit, okay, so then I'll play something that's always super underwhelming. They're like, all right, let's go look around the garden or something. You know, <laughs> oh, you really don't know how to play? Yeah, yeah I done. know, I told you that before. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you guilted
1: me into it, just it. forced me into doing it. Um, yeah. What did you do? Did you go crazy in Hawaii at all? when you? Cause, <laughs> crazy. I mean, in the sense of, you know, like, I remember one of the first times I ever talked to Damon Lindelof about loss, and... and And someone asked him, we were doing a panel and someone said like, um, well, you know, how come this character went away or what happened with this? And he goes, look, we have like we 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 have an idea overall of where we want to go. But a show is made up of actors. And sometimes those actors, I think he was referring specifically to the guy who played Mr. Echo. And so he was like he goes, he got there and then decided he didn't want to be in Hawaii all the time anymore. And so then I thought well, who wouldn't want to be in Hawaii all the time? And I think, well, eh, I guess if you're there for nine months and there's not, and then you've kind of done everything and then you're sort of isolated from the... Ma- I
2: don't know, maybe, you know, did, did you enjoy the process? Or, I, <coughs> excuse me, I-, I think I had a few things working in my favor because as someone who traveled all their, li- all their life, I was fine picking up my stuff and just transplanting it in Hawaii. And you would also go off and play with snakes. I'd also was- go off and play with all the, you know, uh, species in Hawaii. And I was a surfer because I learned to surf in New Zealand Got to become friends with a guy called Kalani Rob, who's from Hawaii, professional surfer. So he and I were, you know, friends and we hung out. You know, I was falling in love in Hawaii. So I spent like the first few years just blissfully in love. So it was nice for you. So there was there were things about it that worked. I mean, we also benefited from like, you know, lost exploded in so many different kind of pop culture ways, but being isolated on an island, you didn't feel it quite as much. And I think if we had filmed the show in LA some of the slightly more kind of egotistical personalities on the show would have been way more irritating if they weren't <laughs> living on an island where there's like four good restaurants and one good club. You it's
1: know? too bad, and I always say this of any show that's successful where you just go, guys, it's really hard to get a show on the air. It's really hard to keep a show on the air. It's nearly impossible to have a hit show. Is there any way that maybe we could just enjoy this process yeah, yes. and not get all fucking crazy and heady yeah, about yeah. it? I mean, you know.
2: I don't I don't like bashing Lost because it's an amazing show. I had an incredible experience on it. And it's a, it's a fantastic show. I, I think that is I would say, for me at least, the first episode of Lost can go up against the first episode of any show out there and the first season of Lost. Can go up against any first season. I think it's almost perfect pop cultural, rich, pulpy TV. You know? I, I always say when people
1: ask me about Talking Dead and they're like, oh, could you what other shows would you want to do an after show for? I was like, I wish I had the show for Lost. Yeah, yeah, I wish I had had an after show for Lost to sift through everything because you would watch and then you would forget stuff. And you're like, oh, my God, the Black Rock. I fucking totally forgot about that yeah, thing yeah. from two seasons ago. And yeah. here it is like. There was so there was
2: just so much information to sift through. Yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff. Great characters, great great arcs for these characters, and and uh, I think everyone did really really fantastic work throughout it, from from the writers and the producers and the directors all the way through the ac- the actors. What what started to irk me on last was essentially within reason, a large cast of unknowns started the show. I mean, you know, Harold Perrineau had had a relatively successful career and Terry O'Quinn, and I was lucky enough to come off of Lord of the Rings at the time, Mm -hmm. but, you know, most people had really not done a huge amount apart from maybe this one moment that was great and then, you know, jobbing actors. And within the course of, you know, six months or so, some of those personalities went from I really need a job to continue to be an actor to... I can't fucking believe that I'm not on Letterman. What is going on? <laughs> and I remember, I remember just thinking, man, like, what's happening here? Like, you're in Hawaii. This is an amazing show. You're having a great time. Like, just it's happening. It is all happening right now. All those things that you wanted are happening right now. And I think maybe you just want to moan, you know. Um, but I had a great, I had a great time on Lost, and I was, I was happy that I played a character that that had. A a small amount of uh, significant movements throughout the story. I mean, what I had worried about sticking around with Charlie was that I would just fall back into the background and be kind of, a glorified babysitter and, you know, an in and out. And, oh, he had uh, such a struggle, though. And yeah. there was Claire and heroin and music. And, and you, uh, you rooted for him. You just rooted for him so much. Yeah, and he, and uh, I like the fact that he, he burnt bright and then faded away. There was a rock and roll element to his personality on the show. He arrived with a bang. He made his, you know, presence felt. And you know he left a good-looking corpse. I think that is the story <laughs> of like a rock and roll guy. No not, one not, else could have been that rock and roll. You know, not so. Penny's
1: boat. One final. Oh yeah, I love one final. Oh my god, that was so.
2: And I get that on Twitter, like, uh, I don't know, twenty or twenty
1: or thirty times a day. Someone I will... even did it. I did it on Talking Dead. Like, I Damon was on, and I
2: did it coming back from commercial. Someone will go. Someone will go on Twitter. They'll go. They'll write, "Not Penny's boat." Remember? And I'm like. No, you should just be like, like, "What is that? Yeah, what? What does that even mean? I don't, I don't understand. That, does that correlate to? A, is that a Star Wars line or something? Any? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't um, know.
1: But between that, I mean, you know, and and being, in, you were in New Zealand the entire time for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So
2: we're wow. in New Zealand like just under two years for principal photography, and then we went back for three years running for like eight weeks at a time to uh, do reshoots. That's so. a
1: considerable percentage of your life. Mm.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I, I still have a, a, a very close relationship with Pete. And, um, I mean, you know, some of the people in, in that kind of field, like, you know, Pete and JJ are the people that I'm probably the tightest with in terms of who I've worked with up to now. And with Pete, you know, he's, you know, one of the more powerful people in the business, but he's also someone that... uh I can email him about Doctor Who, or I can email him about my show, or I can ask him what his kids are up to, or you know, there's there's a genuine personal relationship there with someone who has created some real movie magic, you know. And also what was great about that whole adventure with Pete was that at no point did Pete kind of take on this mantle of like, I'm Peter Jackson, I directed Lord of the Rings, I'm I am a movie god, you know, he never did that. He was always like, wow, this is great, huh? Like, this is amazing.
1: You You can't help but love the guy. I moderated the Hobbit panel last year at Comic-Con, and he was awesome. And then also, and of course you find out, like, he's a massive Doctor Who fan and wants to do something on Doctor Who. And you're like, oh my
2: God. Yeah, yeah, he's a a big geek. I mean, in the the greatest way to to say that word, I mean, you know, I, I have geeky elements about my personality that I'm into too. And, you know, Pete has... Huge amounts of storage rooms that he's turned into museums, and they're just full of model ships and model airplanes. And he and I are massive Beatles fans. And he has some like costumes from Yellow Submarine, costumes from Sgt. Pepper's. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Costumes from like the John Lennon wrote, lyrics of John Lennon's. He has correspondence between Charlie Chaplin and his agent, Orson Welles and his agent, Errol Flynn and his agent. Like, and we just, we were just walking around. He was like, oh, Dom, check this out. You'll love it. Little shoebox of, Open envelopes. And I was like, this? And he went, yeah, yeah. I just leafed through a few, th- few things. I was like, okay. Open them up. And it's just Marilyn Monroe and her agent. Ernest Hemingway and his agent. <laughs> Errol Flynn and his agent. I'm like, oh, I'm going to steal this P if you
1: don't mind. Should I be touching this? Uh, yeah. but, the, yeah, but, but when you look at the directors, you know, like, J.J., Guillermo, mm. Peter Jackson, and you, you see... You know, because I've been to Bad Robot before, and it's just like (coughs) all these toys and all this awesome Twilight Zone stuff. And Guillermo has all this crazy stuff at his house and a room that he's built that's where he's it's simulating rain outside all the time, and because he just likes the rain. And he's got a bunch of toys and a bunch, and to hear that, it just that's I get so much more excited about those stories, and it makes me love their work more because then you go, yeah, it's not a job like they're doing; like they're just expressing as a career the stuff that they actually love, Mm. whereas. I mean, I, listen. Michael Bay might be a nerd. He's probably a tit nerd. Right, right. It's probably not. Or a money nerd. Or yeah. a money nerd, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But there's probably not the cool collection of, uh, you know, robots and stuff. Where yeah. you go with the guy who directed Transformers. I don't know. I don't know him at all. Maybe he does like all that stuff. I'm just saying. When I see, he seems more of like a like a jock type of dude. And when I see like 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 nerds who make good. It just it makes me happy because, like, yeah. yes, you should be directing that. You should get this stuff. You should have the success. You're one of us and you're sort of leading the charge and you're doing these things you care about. It's, it's inspiring in that way.
2: It is, yeah. And I think what an interesting correlation between those three people, JJ, Pete, and uh, Guillermo, is they were doing what they loved at a very young age and they continued to do it. You know yeah. what I mean? Both JJ, Guillermo, and Pete were making small. Model monsters when they were seven, eight, nine years old. And I would guess that all three of them, if they ever have any spare time, probably still do the same thing. Probably. And they now just do it on a grand scale. Pete was making little war soldiers when he was a kid. Then he was able to film the Battle of Helm's Deep. He's just doing it on a grander scale because he has. More of an imagination, more uh, money, more opportunity to do it on a on a bigger. Scale. And they would
1: still be doing that shit, even if
2: they never became. Yeah, they would. they would still be. I think they would still be doing that stuff. I, I think they would. I mean, you know, there there is something to be said. There's there's a there's a great advantage about knowing what you wanted to do at a young age. I mean, I I knew I saw Empire Strikes Back first before Star Wars when I was a kid, and then the week after I saw Indiana Jones. I saw Raiders of the Lost Art and I put it—I put it together that Harrison Ford was Han Solo in Indiana Jones—and worked out at the age of seven or eight, which is no great intellectual accomplishment at all. That, uh, that it was a job. That it was—it wasn't. They—they they they didn't just have cameras on Dantooine, <laughs> and they were filming it. You know, it was—it was a film. And once I realized that, I thought, "I'm gonna—I'm gonna do that." And then I realized, "Oh, I actually have to try and do that, and 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 make progress to do that." But I, I had that drive when I was a kid, something that I definitely knew what I wanted to do. There were people way more intelligent than I was at school, way more gifted, way more applied than I was, people who were getting straight A's across the board who didn't really know what they wanted to do and have only really worked out in their mid-30s. Meanwhile, in, in my late teens to early 20s, I was making the mistakes that you should make when you're doing it professionally. When I was just with my friends messing around so if you know what you want to do at a young age you just get a head start on so many things you know
1: well you're also lucky too because of the way that you grew up and the way that you are is that you're sort of like a cat like someone could just drop you anywhere and you're probably going to land on your feet because you know you know how to travel you understand situations like so you know being on a movie set or doing like taking it you have you you have real life experiences that you're able to acclimate to and be like you said like oh no one speaks the language and we have to make sure that we don't offend these people and kind of get what we want. You like, you know, you have that awareness. Oh, you, yeah. you understand how to work any environment, which am, is
2: a, what a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I am the king of the Jedi mind trick as well. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I have, I have, a, I have a couple of physical and mental techniques that I use that are like Jedi mind tricks that are powerful. You know, where's your infomercial? Why are you not selling this as a program? <laughs> I don't want everyone else to know about it, but like, I found myself in situations, you know. So sometimes you'll you'll get yourself into a situation where you're not comfortable. You need to leave. You need to know where the exits are. That kind of stuff. And I'll sometimes apply a couple of small Jedi mind tricks, and they work. They're they're interesting. And we were talking about it last week on the show where because, like, it, you know, with you and I have. A certain level of of uh, visibility in the general public, you can use that to your advantage. When someone can't quite place you, you can flip it on them and gain the advantage. Because it's all about like, if, if you're ever in any kind of you know obviously physical danger, getting the upper hand or throwing the first punch is is a really important thing to do. Because then you have control of the situation. To to some extent, you're dictating. You're in the driver's seat. So. I haven't been in in that situation too much, but I've been in a lot of situations where I know that I need to kind of exert some level of control to either leave or escape or not have someone do something that they want to do. And because you're in that slightly elevated position, they'll make assumptions that you just don't have to confirm for them. You know? (laughs) You just like you don't they don't necessarily need you don't necessarily need to confirm or not that the person that you're talking to on the phone is or isn't your 280-pound bodyguard who's just stood outside. Sure. You know, you can just kind of drop that into the ether (laughs) and let them deal with it as they want to, you know? I like to think that the snake
1: in Vietnam was a huge Lost fan, and that's why it didn't murder you. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh,
1: this guy's giving me so much joy over the... I can't murder him.
2: I I could break his spine. I'm 18 feet long. You know, so... Spiders, and we do a lot of spiders and snakes because the uh, the myth element associated with those animals is, is something that uh, really bombs me out. You know, I mean, I was talking to some girls. I was at BBC America yesterday. I was talking to some girls who said that they were both terrified of spiders and what should they do and how should they deal with it? And I said, well, you got to go through a certain amount of steps. But I said, the first one for you guys to just try and, <clears throat> excuse me, try and keep hold of when you see a spider is unless you're within probably a foot and a half to two feet, not only is the spider not going to come towards you, but the spider really has no concept that you even exist. doesn't know that you're there. I mean, if you breathe on it, it's probably going to go, okay, I smell or sense something in the air that's different, what's that about? But it's not going to go, ooh, human, okay, cool. It's just going to go, wait, there's an organic smell coming towards me that smells like food, potentially, what is that? Um, But you could stand next to a spider or, or sleep next to a spider all night and unless you directly interacted with them. They just don't have the intellectual capability to go <laughs>
1: human. Okay, <laughs> here we go. This will be a piece of cake. They're
2: terrified of us, <laughs> right? It's, it's not in their wheelhouse. They don't, they don't think in that way. Spiders don't necessarily think in any particular way that we can understand, but you know, the rudimentary ways that they do think is, is this something I can eat? Is this something that's going to eat me? am I safe? That's pretty much, and I don't think they think that. It's just, that's their reaction. That, you, know? you
1: know, with spiders and snakes in particular, there's, there's just something biological in some people that some image has attached itself to their molecules. Yes. And no matter how much reasoning, if they see it, they're just like, yeah, like it just, it goes, ar- if their brain fires around their higher brain functions, it just goes right to the, uh, right to the lizard brain. Yeah. And it's all, it's fight or flight. (laughs) I mean,
2: it definitely does do that. And I understand that. I I understand it a little bit more when, excuse me, I would speak to someone and they would say, look, I'm scared of snakes because a snake killed my dad or a snake killed someone in my village or a snake bit my sister and she lost three fingers. I'd be like, okay, that is a significant reason to be scared of snakes. But someone living in Los Angeles who's terrified of vampire bats or crocodiles. You're like, well, <laughs> you need to get a grip on just just the, the, the amount of exposure you're going to have to that fear. Someone asked me on Twitter, again, uh, give me one good reason why I shouldn't be scared of sharks. And I said, because you're not aquatic. You know? <laughs> they're easy to avoid. It, they're so easy to avoid on a general basis. I mean... More people are killed by, you know, washing machines than sharks and we don't go, "Oh my god, the laundry." You right. know, like it's just the perspective is whacked and like I said, if I was swimming in the ocean and a great white sh- or any type of shark to within reason was underneath me circling me, that is a terrifying moment. I would be genuinely scared. If I saw a tiger in the forest of India, I would be scared, but I wouldn't not take a flight to India because tigers live there that you were our understanding of 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 that fear is off, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, this has been a really fun hour. Yeah, and that was cool. We got we covered soccer, we covered animals, we, we got a little lost, we got a little Lord of the Rings, uh, we got some travel
2: knowledge. You didn't really we, do Star Wars. Can I ask you a couple of questions on Star Wars sure, before we, we finish? Sure. Yeah. The JJ Star Wars thing in spe- in specifics, yeah. Like. Uh, Obviously, you and I grew up on 4, 5, and 6, and then Correct. 1, 2, and 3 came around. Correct. If, now that we know, because I've been, you know, thinking about this a lot with people and talking about it a lot with people, now that we know that J.J.'s jumping on to Star Wars, um, is, is there, like, well, like, what, what are your specific concerns? What would you hope, as someone who, J.J., I think, is in his early 40s, who obviously grew up with 4, 5, and 6 as yep. well, what would you hope would be kind of the stance that you'd take? And like, where do you think that's all going? I don't have any <clears> concerns <throat> about it because, uh, and, I, and I do get asked,
1: people, I, I've done a bunch of interviews with people are like, are you worried about anything? I'm like, no, because what you have is uh, now Star Wars is at a place where really accomplished directors, they're, they're essentially going to be super high budget fan films, which... It's it's a new perspective. It's a new take. You know, a guy like J.J. who was probably super inspired by Star Wars mm. that for the last 40 years of his life has probably been, you know, th- well, okay, 35 years of his life mm. has probably been saying, uh, oh my God, here's what I would do with Star Wars. I mean, like that motivation probably helped drive him to be a director. Sure. And now he has a chance to express that. And so I'm very excited about that. Yeah. He's probably, because... You know, I thought he made a good Star Trek movie, and he didn't even really like Star Trek. Right. The series. Yeah. So he is about to go undertake something that he loves. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm excited to see where it goes. And, you know, unlike a lot of the internet, I like to judge things before they – But I mean, I like to judge things after I see them and not sure. before. Sure. Whereas the internet is like, oh, my God, how go, – what, what's happening? You know, like pieces of the internet are like, more Star Wars. Wait. I'm like, fuck yeah, more Star Wars. Yeah. And from a, a fresh perspective. Yeah from a guy who loves it, who can't, you know, like, why wouldn't you want that? I would, I think J.J.'s great. I would love to see Guillermo make a Star Wars movie because, I mean, like, just the fucking creatures alone would be incredible. What about like a,
2: you know, like a, like an Aronofsky Star Wars or like a Paul Thomas Anderson Star Wars, like a like a Star Wars that's... Or a Wes
1: Anderson Star Wars. Yeah, yeah,
0: (laughs) it's it's so rich in
2: character and, and it doesn't really move intergalactically that much, but you go into the the nuances of the personalities and the, and the, you know, the darkness of these characters. I'd someone,
1: like someone must've done like a Wes Anderson star Wars where it's just like really long, like static shots of beautiful scenery. Jesus. And then like uh, an alter, like, like some sort of a ukulele song. Yeah. Starts playing. A voiceover comes yeah, in. Yeah. exactly. like, I never knew what it would be like going down to Dagobah, <laughs> <laughs> but I knew today would be different. Dun, dun,
2: dun, 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 dun. Yoda comes out in a, in a tennis band. <laughs> I, uh, you know, one of my favorite things about Star Wars, growing up, four, five, and six, and I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't. It, this just, just, just leaked into me without, without me really thinking about it. Was the fact that everything felt so real. You know, the Millennium Falcon had bumps and scratches and dents yeah. on it, and the Death Star wasn't fully operational yet. And you know, if you if you fell over, you would get hurt, and people got scared and stuff like that. I think the Star Trek world, in terms of films, and the Star Wars world differs in the sense that there there is a slick cleanness about the star trek world in a way i mean obviously jj's made it get a little bit more dirty, but what i loved about four five and six the the uh original stuff was that it was it was a world that you knew it was a world that f- felt like you could touch and grab and feel and that's what i'm hoping really happens with with the jj film because i know that he goofs off on that stuff is that you know, you if you if you see Tontons or if you see Jabba the Hutt or if you see a a a, a character that's a little disgusting, that they do have snart and they do have scars and they yeah. are covered in stuff. You know, I want to see it be a be a world that lives and breathes. You know, but uh, I don't think there's anyone better than JJ to do it. Like he's just, like you said, he's been a fan all his life, and you know, I think JJ probably feels that. That weight on his shoulders of being a Star Wars fan all his life and it being one of the reasons why he is a director and now he's helming that ship. But I think also what what I've noticed about J.J. over the years is that he is more than willing to like step up to the plate. He's good with pressure. He deals with it and he's going to want to deliver for his kids, in the same way that Lucas delivered for him when he was a kid, he's- There's so much
1: emotional investment for him as opposed to just a director that they've hired? Right. Like he is not just for his kids, but for himself. Yeah. Do you? I mean, he's not going to want to be the guy that ruins Star no, Wars. No, no. not 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 even just for the fans or for the box office, but for himself. Totally. totally. So I I feel good about it, and Me I'm too. excited. And I think you know more Star Wars is. Is is more Star Wars, and yeah. it's you know like I, I'm I, I I can't. I'm sure over the years he's thought here's what I would have done. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, maybe try this. Maybe. he probably has it all. It like now his head is this fucking toy box that he finally gets to open and play with, and go finally. Yeah. Now I get to do all the stuff I always wanted to do. Yeah.
2: And I'm excited to see that. And supposedly I read this in Empire this month. I I don't know if it if it features in Star Trek, but he said it, so maybe it does. JJ says that he's put a miniature R2-D2 in every single one of his films. So I hope it features in Star Trek somewhere. Oh. A miniature, like it's, you know, what? what is that? Eight, No, well, like 10 centimeters? Sure. Like that. So just somewhere hidden in everything. Somewhere hidden. It's definitely in Super 8. It's definitely in uh, Cloverfield. Can I give you my best Yoda impression when we finish? Uh, please. <laughs> Your weapons, you will not eat
1: them. That's really good.
2: That's really good. You know what people mess up with uh, Yoda a lot is they do that. (laughs) Yeah. But he he only does that a couple of times, and he's not the jolly guy that much. My favorite thing that that Yoda does is when when Luke has decided to leave the Dagobah system and and Ben Kenobi says, then all is lost, and Yoda says, no, there is another. (laughs) You're like, oh, who's the other one? That's rad, you know, but. What if Yoda were calling a soccer match? We're well, here with comedian <laughs> Dominic. But
1: I told that. See, the, you shouldn't have told me that you can do that because I'll just be like, "Oh, say this." Yeah,
0: I'll
2: do oh,
1: do my outgoing message. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's what. Uh, you know what? How about this? If some, what's the movie you're looking for? The Tale of the Dragon. Oh, the Flight of the Dragon. Flight of the Dragon. If you can find Flight of the Dragons for Dominic Monaghan, he will do your outgoing message yep. as probably any character that you want, but. I would choose Yoda if I were you. Yeah, Yoda.
2: I'll come into the nerdy studio, I'll record it, and then we'll get it to you on the uh, voicemail. Love it. Perfect.
1: Sweet. At Dom's Wild Things on Twitter. Uh, Wild Things, Dominic Monaghan on BBC America. And uh, I think we covered everything. Good to see you, man. Good to see you too, man. Thanks for coming in. Welcome. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. You should tell everyone to enjoy their burrito because you have a much better accent than I do. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Fucking perfect. God damn it. <laughs> Me and my stupid mashed-up American accent. You can't even tell where I'm from. (laughs) I'm regionless. Boring. Vanilla.
2: Now leaving Nerdist.com.
0: Enjoy your burrito.
1: This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. I have missed these Friday night dinners. welcome to Harvey Grah at these family dinners everyone. Dysfunction is served wow. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life Oh, I'm sorry,
0: do we embarrass you? Job, 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 job. It's already better than I dared to dream
1: miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season One. Stream free only on Freebie.